Arena by Scrib Crib Publishing is based off the work by Alex Veralt to the land of Arena. For more information, you can visit our website, scribcrib.com. The wind blew furiously across the grassy plains as they stepped toward the mountain, their cloak swaying feverishly with each gust. Holding onto a stick in his hand to offer some balance, the older man walked up the path with the younger girl behind him. Come on, he announced with the wind pushing the covering on his face to the side. We are almost there. Yes, sir, replied the girl as they made it to the front of the large mountain. He stepped forward and placed his hand on it, revealing a large, purple door that looked in on an old, wooden building. Are you sure about this, Papa? She asked as she walked up to the door. Are you sure it is safe for me to go? The older man smiled as he looked down at his daughter. Listen to me, we can only run from the Ramis for so long. At some point, we have to get ahead of them. They will take that world next, but hopefully, you can help rally the forces to fight them. She looked into the older man's eyes and smirked. Will I ever see you again? I hope so, he replied as he leaned forward and embraced her. Be strong and be safe. The future is in your hands. I love you, she replied, and she let him go and walked up to the open portal. I promise I will not fail you or the people of Erna. I know you won't, replied the old man as he watched her turn and walk through the portal in the mountain. Soda City, a subterranean metropolis, bustled as it did every day. Men and women, all toiling away for a better life, lived under the close watch of the protectors of Eden. The skies were covered by a metallic roof and the hum of machines could be heard at every hour of the day. The citizens were provided with domiciles, apartments in high-rise buildings, where they could rest and relax so long as they continued to provide for society. Everyone was expected to work in the factories in order to maintain their status in the world. It was a caste system that was forced on the population for their survival. Those who chose not to provide for society lived in the streets or were forced to live on the surface. Twelve years prior to the incidents in the home of Reginald Mitten, President Arthur Gallian, leader of the United Nations of Earth, proclaimed the end of the world was at hand. Over the course of three years, the ozone blistered and burst in several spots, allowing more and more radiation to penetrate the Earth. Men and women died en masse. The sun had declared war on the Earth and an epic genocide was at hand. The masses gathered in the largest cities, some already partially underground, to watch the end come. The populations of the varying countries all over the world were dropping dead due to overexposure to the sun and the air of the earth. It became incredibly toxic for anyone to be outside for extended periods of time. To combat the immense radiation and toxic climate, cities were constructed underground. Food was grown in labs and artificially synthesized providing all of the key nutrients for a proper diet and water was brought in from the oceans through a series of underground pipes and filtered extensively to remove any salt, sediment, and radiation. In the cities of Eden, a storm of overpopulation and crime brewed. The soldiers of Poe acted as a vengeful police force patrolling the asphalt streets around the clock with ground transports and air transports stalking the skies. Crime was met with zero tolerance. Any wrongdoers were swiftly apprehended by Poe's iron fists. But still, the streets ran rampant with criminal activity. Shadows lurked in every corner and the seedy underworld thrived, defying justice and terrorizing innocent citizens. Zack raced through the bustling streets of Soda City as bullets whizzed past his head, fired from the car that was hot on his heels. Dodging each shot and volley with practiced precision, he moved like a ghost in the night, desperately seeking a way to evade his assailants. His short blonde hair shone dimly in the moonlight as his tattered garments flew about him and a small handgun dangled by his side. Reaching a turning point, Zack yanked out his pistol and leaned against a large dumpster, firing two shots into the passenger seat of the vehicle. The car screeched and shuddered before one of the attackers slumped lifelessly back into their seat. With little time to spare, Zack sheathed his gun and ran in the opposite direction, 
maneuvering past the dumpster just in time for the car to reverse and continue its pursuit. He bolted onto a major road with the careening vehicle close behind him, its tires squealing as it sought to overtake him. He pulled out his weapon and began to fire at the car as it came to a sudden stop. Zack lowered his gun as two men stepped out of the car. One in a very well-tailored suit with a pencil-thin mustache and slicked-back hair and the other in tattered clothes, holding a gun. I'm tired of you running, Zack, announced the man in the suit as he walked out onto the street. And to be honest, I'm tired of chasing you too. Why don't you give up that disc? Zack smiled as he held out his weapon, pointing at the man in the suit as he looked at him with scorn. What disc? he asked playfully. I don't know what you're talking about. Cut the crap, Zack. We know you have it, continued the man as he pointed at his subordinate to walk toward him. Give it up and we'll let you go. Zack took a step back as the man approached him. I don't know what you want, but you're not going to find it here, he said. The suited man stepped up and halted his subordinate, walking towards Zack as he held his hands out in peace. Look, I know you have the files required to unlock the gates, stated the man. I want them and I'm willing to pay for them. He stood still and folded his arms across his chest while a wry smile emerged from both corners of his mouth. Look, you can trust me. You can trust Jim. I can't trust Jim, sir, said Zack as he walked off the street and onto a curb. The second I hand you a disc is the second my life ends, and I'm not ready to go out like that. Jim looked out at the streets and shook his head in disbelief. So you're telling me you'd rather take death than to simply give me what I want? Both options end in death. At least holding onto the disc gives me a chance to live, he replied, backing up slowly on the curb and looking around to see three other men walking up. Give it up. We have you surrounded, Zack, said Jim as he watched the three men approach him. Zack shook his head, prompting the first man to swing at his head. Quickly, he dropped to the ground before the impact and rolled out of the way, reaching for his gun and shooting Jim in the arm. He tried to fire again, hoping for a kill shot, only to find that it was out of ammo. He continued to roll, dropping his gun and kicking one of the other men in the groin before springing to his feet. He leapt onto the man's back and springboarded himself up to a fire escape, pulling himself up and climbing toward the rooftops as the ladder fell to the ground. The remaining two thugs gave chase, climbing the ladder as quickly as Zack was and not allowing him to gain any ground. Zack braced himself for the two thugs charging toward him on the rooftop. He darted out of the way, using every ounce of agility he could muster. As one thug stumbled to regain his balance, Zack seized the opportunity and wrapped his hands around his collar. With a powerful heave, he threw him to the ground with a thunderous crash. The other brute came barreling toward him again, but Zack was already prepared. In one swift motion, he pulled out a glinting dagger from his boot and drove it through the man's heart. The force of the blow caused the body to collapse into a lifeless heap. The sound of an approaching Poe flying surveyor filled the air as Zack withdrew his dagger and plunged it into the chest of the second attacker. He slipped it back into its sheath and turned toward the sound, narrowing his eyes as he saw a Poe soldier stepping out of the hovering craft. Don't move, announced the soldier sternly, pointing his weapon at Zack. You are under arrest. Zack grinned fiercely as the surveyor's beam of light blared onto him like a beacon. Not on my watch tonight, he growled, pushing his feet into motion and sprinting with all of his might toward the far end of the building. As the spotlight followed him, he launched himself off the edge and soared through the air towards a nearby building. Without warning, Zack crashed through one of the windows and collided into a family dining room table. Sorry to crash in here, he blurted out quickly, catching everyone off guard with his sudden presence. Before they could process what was happening, Zack bounded away from them and barreled into the hallway. The jolting tone of several Poe soldiers' radios echoed through the building below him, alerting him that they were hot on his heels and that he only had seconds to escape. Zack's frantic breathing echoed in the tight elevator shaft as he frantically searched for a way out of his predicament. He threw his body against the door time and again, frantically trying to pry it open with sheer strength alone. With one last shove, the steel doors creaked and opened, sending Zack jumping through and into the dark abyss of the elevator shaft. 
He felt free falling as he tumbled downwards until he grabbed onto the side of the elevator just before it reached the second floor. High above, he heard the thunderous footsteps of approaching Poe patrollers seeking their prey. As their commanding voice bellowed from the hallway, Zack scrambled up and onto the roof of the elevator as it suddenly jerked upwards. The patrollers were shocked to find the elevator empty and began sensing the shaft for Zack's presence until one noticed him perched atop the elevator car. Zack propelled himself off of the elevator car and grabbed hold of one of the thick, knotted ropes that lowered it. He swung himself onto it and shimmied down as quickly as he could, his fingers gripping tightly against the rough fibers. In seconds, he reached the dimly lit basement, stale with a musty smell. As he rounded the corner, he saw a Poe patroller walking slowly around the perimeter. Taking no chances, Zack lunged forward and seized him from behind, pinning the man's arms to his side in a tight embrace before choking him into unconsciousness. With swift movements, he peeled off the guard's suit and pulled it over his head. After giving the limp form one last glance, Zack launched himself out of the basement in search of another Poe patroller waiting for him outside. Did you find anything? he asked as he walked up towards Zack, not noticing anything different. Zack shook his head slightly in disgust, putting on an elaborate act for the patroller. All right, I guess he escaped. Get back to headquarters, continued the man. Zack nodded and turned around toward the transport as the Poe patroller looked back at him. Hey, he announced, forcing Zack to regretfully turn around. You lost weight. Zack breathed a sigh of relief and held out his hand, motioning at the other patroller as he walked away to the transport. He walked onto it and it took off immediately, flying over several of the taller buildings toward the plate where Poe headquarters was. He looked at the transport to see the tall buildings lighting up the dark sky as night fell upon the city, though light never came in, so it was always dark. Day was a manufactured condition for the citizens of Soda City, as well as the rest of Eden, to ensure that they remained healthy and productive. The continuation of humanity's survival depended on it. The transport flew quietly to Poe headquarters as Zack rested comfortably, knowing he would have to escape the second the ship landed, though that was the easy part. She gripped her brother's waist as he rode hard in the sand, stirring up the particles in the air as the wheels spun rapidly. With three other bikes behind and around them, they led the charge through the wasteland as the poisonous rays of the sun beat down on them. This is so uncomfortable, she said as she tightened her grip and peered over her brother's shoulder. Equipped with clothing and gear that covered every inch of their bodies, the group traveled through an area en route to their destination. Yeah, but it's what we have to wear, replied her brother as he gripped the throttle on his bike firmly. She looked back at the others while holding onto her brother tightly to see that everyone was keeping pace. She turned back to see their target, a very large freighter carrying goods and supplies between the outposts. Positions, everyone, she said as she loosened up her grip on her brother and adjusted her hips in the seat. A second bike pulled up beside her, this one also carrying two people. Radoc, make sure to secure the back so that air transport can grab the cargo while I secure the cabins, she said plainly as she stood up on the back of the motorcycle, repositioning her hands to her brother's shoulders so she could balance herself. No mistakes. Of course, Karaki, replied the woman on the other motorcycle. You just make sure to get off that freighter alive. I'll have the back secured. She answered as she mimicked Karaki Noots the woman leading the expedition who was also standing up on the other bike. Both ladies were on their feet, keeping their hands on their shoulders of their drivers as they sped up and reached the freighter. With two other motorcycles behind them to provide support, they positioned themselves on both sides of the freighter and prepared to board it. The freighter was a large steel box that was insulated to protect it from the rays of the sun and the heat it produced. In front, a large truck pulled it along through the wasteland at a very rapid speed. All right, now, shouted Karaki as she leapt from the back of her bike. Once in the air, she and Radok pulled out two small sticks and slammed them into the side of the freighter, deploying metal hooks into the side of the box to allow them to stay on. 
Are you on the side? She asked as she held on to the two sticks with her body hanging in the air. Radok looked back to see the motorcycle carrying her right away and get back into formation. Yeah, I'm on the side, she announced. Should we start our ascent? Karaki looked back to see her brother releasing the throttle and trailing back into the group. Yeah, let's get to the top, she said calmly as she pulled the first stick out of the side and placed it back in a foot higher. Using the sticks in her hands to scale the tall, steel structure, the freighter continued to move at a rapid pace with the motorcycles behind trailing it closely. Both ladies made it to the top quickly to find the top of the structure flat and empty, though several doors lined the center from the front to the back to allow access into the hole. I really wish we could do these missions at night, joked Karaki as she looked on at Radok. This gear is stifling. Right, but I'd also rather not die from sun exposure, retorted Radok. Besides, they moved at night, there would be a lot more of us attacking them. Karaki marched forward with a sense of purpose as Radok trailed behind, both of them wearing thick suits that seemed to muffle their movements. The gloves were cold and the helmets felt heavier than either of them had imagined, the daytime sky almost feeling like it should smother them. Karaki forced herself onwards, her cybernetic eyes scanning the ship for any signs of someone leaking information to their enemies. Nothing was out of place until she reached the back of the freighter and saw four bikes keeping a safe distance from her. With a deep breath, she continued on, her vision blocked by the helmet as she knelt down at the farthest door. Unblinking, she peered through the steel walls and zeroed in on her target, a small panel of buttons and levers. Without hesitation, she yanked it open, exposing a freezing cabin beyond. Jumping inside, she slammed the door shut with a violent bang, locking herself away while embarking on this hazardous mission. She looked around the cabin before pulling her helmet off and setting it on one of the many shelves that lined the small corridor. Much better, she said as she shook her head. Her brunette hair was kept back in a ponytail as her pale complexion was magnified by the darkness of her hair. Her lips were red and her facial features were well-defined, highlighted by her pointed nose and bright blue, cybernetic eyes. I'm at the panel, she announced as she placed her hand on her ear to hold the microphone in place. Everyone check in. What is our status? Radok knelt down at the back of the freighter and drilled the last hole into the structure to hold the hooks for the air transport. The back is secured, she announced as she looked back to see the bike still holding their position. I'm going to hold my position now until the transport comes up. She paused as she looked behind the freighter to see a transport coming forward behind the bikes in the distance. I've got eyes on a transport coming up fast behind you guys, she announced as she looked at the motorcycles. The transport is already en route, asked Karaki as she started to fidget with the panel, pressing a few of the buttons and pulling the levers to release the freighter from the truck pulling it. It shouldn't be, announced a male voice coming over the headset. Karaki, I'm going to head back and see what that transport is before it gets up to us. Karaki pulled back from the console, concerned over what she was hearing. Be careful, Avil, she said to one of her two brothers with her. Always, he replied as he released the throttle and decelerated quickly, almost stopping his motorcycle. The three other motorcycles kept up the pace with freighters as Avil Nuntz looked up into the sky as the transport approached. Wearing gear that was identical to his sister, with the exception of gloves that allowed him to grip the handles on the motorcycle more easily and a set of ice blue cybernetic eyes, he placed his right boot on the dusty ground and looked up into the sky to see the transport pass him overhead. It was very large and black, with several guns on the side of it and the words Refux City across the bottom of it and Poe across the sides. His eyes opened up underneath his helmet as he reached down to the side to pull out a small pistol. Poe! He screamed as he opened fire on the transport. It's a setup! Radok's heart pounded as she felt the freighter's top start to give way. With a mighty leap, she launched herself far off the ground and into the air. She hung suspended for a moment that felt like an eternity before gravity re-engaged with a vengeance. The sides of the freighter folded down to create a solid platform, secured by thick chains and braced with metal supports as the barriers between the corridors were cast away. 
Karaki raced forward and strapped on her helmet before any harm could be done. She reached the console and released the truck from its bindings below as Radok landed gracefully in the center of the freighter. Karaki spun towards her with admiration in her eyes. Nice landing, what's your next move? Radok smiled underneath her helmet as she looked back to see the transport passing over the motorcycles and preparing to hover over them. As the two girls glanced up at the Poe transport, the three motorcycles surrounded the released freighter as it slowed down. Four ropes came from the sides of the transport and hung down to the sides of the freighter with four soldiers preparing to descend from them. Dak, Uralt, Zybek, open fire on the exposed soldiers as they come down from the transport, instructed Karaki as she and Radok looked up at the bottom of the transport. Karaki pulled out the two pistols on her side while Radok pulled the longer gun off of her back. Once you see them, open fire, continued Karaki calmly, trying her best to assess the situation without panicking. She looked underneath the transport to see seven heat signatures. There are seven soldiers. One of them is the pilot and four are coming down here to intercept us. That leaves two up there to act as gunners, so take care. The four soldiers spilled out of the transport as the three motorcycles blazed the skies with automatic gunfire. Radok and Karaki followed suit, peppering the air with bullets. The first soldier stumbled as a bullet found its mark. He fell from the transport while the other three managed to reach the freighter unscathed. The craft rocketed back into the sky and repositioned itself as the two post-soldiers trained their rifles on Radok and Karaki. Meanwhile, the third post-soldier, wearing conspicuously thin armor, advanced toward them. He wore bulky gauntlets that stretched up to his elbows and glowed with an eerie power. Moving closer to the side, he peered at them from beneath his helmet and sneered in contempt. Syndicate scum. His words echoed in a malevolent whisper before releasing a torrent of air from both turbines that sent both women flying to the ground of steel with inhumane force. Ugh, groaned Karaki as she rolled around on the ground with Radok lying on her back. The force knocked the breath out of both women as the soldier walked up to the two of them, keeping his hands out with the turbines pointed at them. Any help right now would be appreciated, Karaki said softly in her headset, hoping that one of the men with them would take action. The post soldier turned around quickly to find one of the men traveling with the women standing on the freighter with them, having snuck up quietly without being noticed. Holding a large staff in his hands, a large energy blade emerged from the end to create a scythe. As the two soldiers turned to face him, he lifted into the air and delivered two quick slashes with his weapon, cutting both soldiers across their midsections. Uralt Nuntz, said the post soldier as he took his attention away from the two women and walked toward the scythe-wielding outlander. Karaki's older brother, Uralt, was a very quiet, yet cold and calculating individual with a reputation for savagely killing anyone who gets in his path. While that was only partially true, he would certainly sever the torso of anyone who tried to bring harm upon his family. He walked toward the scythe-wielding outlander as the two women rolled around on the ground behind them. The air transport circled around as Dak and Zybek, the remaining two men on their bikes, opened fire on the transport, leaving Earl to handle the other post soldier. In the distance, Abel rode as fast as he could to catch up to the others who were now stationary. With the focus of the remaining soldier now firmly on Earl, the two girls were able to rise to their feet without any assistance. He stepped toward the covered man who carried a large scythe at his side, walking with a sense of purpose and furor. I was not expecting to find such a trophy today, announced the post-soldier arrogantly. It is fitting that I finally get to take down one of the most dangerous and wanted men in the world. You will be the capture that makes my career legendary. Uralt stood stone-faced as he looked through the large helmet. And who might you be? He asked in a soft tone. Aaron Wodek, or just Captain Wodek, answered the post-soldier with a cocky tone in his voice. Uralt stood still as he gripped his scythe firmly with the air transport rotating around the freighter. Wodek, he whispered as he looked over the soldier, noticing his red-orange armor standing out from the rest of them. That name sounds oddly familiar. 
I've caught several outlanders like yourself, he replied. Oh, right. You're one of the better hunters that Poe has, though I thought Reginald Mitten put several holes in your sternum a few months ago, asked Earlt. Wodex smirked. I've had my fair share of injuries, but I always come back stronger, he said, tightening his grip on his weapon. Now are you going to surrender peacefully, or do I have to take you down myself? Earlt laughed, a deep belly rumble that echoed through the deserted landscape. I'd like to see you try, he said, brandishing his scythe. The two men charged at each other, their weapons clashing in a fiery display of sparks. Wodek was quick, but Earlt was experienced, using his scythe in fluid motions that left the pole soldier off balance. They circled each other, exchanging blows and insults as they fought for dominance. Meanwhile, the two women had regained their footing and were now standing on the sidelines, watching the battle with bated breath. Abel had finally caught up, his bike skidding to a halt next to them. What the hell is going on? asked Abel, confused as he looked at the fight that was unfolding before him. Earlt is fighting Captain Wodek, said one of the women, her eyes glued to the battle. Abel looked at Earlt, admiration in his eyes as he saw how skillfully he wielded his scythe. As the fight between them raged on, it became clear that Earlt was winning. His scythe was a deadly weapon, and he used it with precision and grace. Wodek, on the other hand, was starting to tire, his movements becoming sluggish and slow. In a final, decisive move, Earlt swung his scythe towards Wodek, who stumbled backwards, his weapon falling from his grasp. Earlt stepped forward, pointing his scythe at Wodek's throat. You lose, he said, his voice low and dangerous. Wodek stared up at Earlt, defeated and humiliated. He had never been bested in a fight before, and now here he was at the mercy of this notorious outlaw. However, before Earlt could deliver the final blow, Wodek reached onto his side and grabbed a small pistol. He pulled the trigger, releasing a small canister of gas into the air, stunning Earlt and sending him stumbling backwards. With Earlt a few feet away, Wodek was able to scamper back and activate a propulsion system on his suit. The soles of Captain Wodek's boots illuminated before his body lifted off the ground. Seconds later, he was off into the arid abyss where Earlt and the rest of the Outlanders couldn't finish him off. Abel watched in shock as Wodek made his escape. He turned to the women, a look of anger on his face. Why didn't anyone try to stop him? He demanded. The women shrugged, their faces resigned. There's no point, said Karaki. He'll be back soon enough with reinforcements. Abel gritted his teeth, frustrated at the seemingly endless cycle of violence and retaliation. He glanced over at Earlt, who was slowly getting back to his feet, his scythe still clutched tightly in his hand. Despite the setback, Abel knew that Earlt would not give up. He was determined to protect his friends and his family. This was only a minor setback. Abel reached up and placed his hand on Earlt's shoulder. Come on, let's go home. I'll buy you some hooch. Earlt sheathed his scythe and sighed loudly. He glanced over at Abel and nodded emphatically. That sounds lovely. Hey, thanks for listening to Erina. For more information on Erina and any other of our audio dramas and products, please visit us at scribcrib.com or you can check us out on Facebook, Reddit, or Twitter.